Excellent singing this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Haggai, or Haggai, however you say it. Chapter 1. We'll be there in a moment. Haggai chapter 1. Week from Tuesday, January 30th, uh, President Donald Trump will deliver the State of the Union Address to a joint session of Congress. Now you ask, what is the State of the Union? Well, in short, and it's a, and it's a, it is an address that the President of the United States gives at the beginning of every year to discuss the economic and political situation of our country. The first State of the Union Address was given by George Washington in 1790. Eleven years later, Thomas Jefferson discontinued the practice of giving the speech in person because he felt it mirrored what the King of England did every year, and so he did not want to do the same thing. And so from that point on, they began to, um, it, it, the speech was read, um, the written speech was read in front of the Congress until 1913 when Woodrow Wilson reestablished the practice of giving the speech in person in front of the joint sessions of Congress. Today, I want to deliver a message called the State of the Church. Now, this is similar to the State of the Union in that I want to look at our church, First Baptist Church. I want to discuss what makes us great and what we need to improve on. If you have watched the State of the Union address in recent years, then you know that what typically happens is, as the President is speaking, with each point that he gives, the side of the political aisle that agrees with him will stand and applaud loudly. The opposing side will sit and with angry looks glare at the President. Now, hopefully that doesn't happen today. In fact, I'm asking that it not happen today. I do not want you to stand and applaud, and I definitely don't want you to give me evil glares, okay? So let's just get that across. But I do want you to do something for me today. I want you to listen with openness. I want you to listen with humility. And I want you to listen with a desire to grow in your relationship with God. I am going to make some very general statements about our church, and, and I want you to understand that this is a general statement about our church, and, and do not think that I am personally attacking you. Because honestly, as I go through this, there is not a single name floating through my mind of anyone in this, in this auditorium. If you feel that way, that I'm attacking you personally, then let it be known right now that that's God not me. I want to tell you that I truly love this church. Prior to um, us arriving here, the longest, or prior to us being here, the longest I had ever been in a church was nine years old, for nine years, and that was when I was a kid and into my teen years. We've been here over 12 years. I say that to say that this church has become my home. Uh, I love the people of this church. My family has grown to love this church. and My family has grown up here. My son was eight months old when we moved here. He just turned 13. This is our home. 
And in that time, we have grown to know you, many of you very well, some of you not as well, but still well. And we have grown to know your strengths, your weaknesses, as well as you've grown to know my strengths and weaknesses. And so as we go into this, I want to just share with you my heart. If you're visiting with us today, I, I think God can teach you something through this as well, but I'm sharing with my church my heart. We as a church typically are known as a church that's great at greeting visitors and making them feel at home. Many times I've had visitors come up and say, man, I loved being here. I felt like I was home. I know that many of you at times have, have pulled visitors in and have even offered to take them to lunch. And that, that is a commendable thing. However, we as a church are not good in the area of evangelism. Through my 12 years I've been here, we've hosted many evangelistic out, uh, outreaches. And the majority of the time, the majority of the participants that come to those outreaches are our teens. And that's not how it should be. As a church, we're a family. And as a family, you do an incredible job caring for each other and loving each other. There's been many times where I go to the hospital, visit one of our church members who's in the hospital, and I get there and I find six other church members already there, none of whom are related to the person there. That's commendable. But as a family, sometimes you hurt each other unintentionally. And that shouldn't be. Our responsibility is to help each other and to grow. There has been times when I've seen fighting, but rarely. As a church, I think we do a good job at that. We don't quarrel over insignificant things, and I'm so thankful for that. I hear from pastor friends in other churches, and they tell me, oh man, the church was quarreling over this, and I think, you've got to be kidding me. I'm thankful my church doesn't do that. I would say that the, as a majority, this church loves to study the Word of God. You're not content with just a flowery message or, or a simple lesson. You want depth. And you want to study the Word of God and you want to know what the Bible says and, and you, you, you desire to know more about God and I appreciate that. Many of you study the Word of God on your own and I love hearing that. I love many times when people will come by and say, man, what you preach this morning is what I've been studying all week and that's, that's exciting. But one of my biggest worries for myself and us as a church is that at times we can become okay with status quo. We've been around a long time as a church. We just celebrated 150 years as a church. And many of you have been Christians for a long time. You've been believers for most of your life. You've been here and a part of this church or other churches for a long time. And so it is easy for unchecked complacency to creep into our lives. I want to study a passage today where God spoke to the people of Israel about complacency about an attitude that had crept into them and what they were experiencing and what God said to them. And so turn to the book of Haggai and look at chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have uh, your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, said the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little and when you brought it, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew. The earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, and on grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will help us to understand your passion for your people. The passion that you showed to these people is the same passion you have for us. God, I pray that you will help us to have open hearts and minds this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Haggai is one of the shortest books of the Bible. And is included in a group of books called the Minor Prophets. He was a prophet of the restoration, meaning that he ministered to the people of God after their return from exile in Babylon. He was one of the last prophetic voices to be heard before the coming of Christ. Unlike most of the prophets, though, that spoke, Haggai actually had the joy of seeing his ministry produce positive results. The predominant theme for the book of Haggai is that of spiritual apathy. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to look at three aspects of that. The evidence of spiritual apathy, the consequence, and the cure. So first of all, the evidences of spiritual apathy. How do we know spiritual apathy had set in? Well, we're going to look at the people of God, and then we're going to talk about ourselves. First of all, God's people were neglecting the work. Look at verse 4, if you will. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, first of all, we need to understand the historic context of his message. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar invaded and overthrew Jerusalem. The city was completely destroyed and the temple was demolished. God's people were taken into captivity in Babylon. And they remained there for 70 years. The exile there was God's judgment. God had told them way back in Deuteronomy that if you don't follow my plan, if you don't do what I'm I'm telling you to do, excuse me, Mike's messing up there, If you don't do what I tell you to do, then I'm going to take you into captivity. And that's what he did. He was judging them. These 70 years were a time of sorrow, understandably. It was a time when they felt cut off from God. They felt that God had abandoned them. And they felt all alone. And they felt they couldn't worship God the way they wanted to. Psalm 137 describes how they felt. Look what it says there. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? 
Those 70 years were a time for the people of Israel where they were, they were broken. They were abandoned. And though God had punished them through exile, He did not abandon them. He had promised that their captivity would not be permanent, but it would only last for 70 years. Each time they would, they would be able to return home and rebuild their land. In 536 B.C., the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians. And the king, King Cyrus, he issued an edict and he gave permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of rebuilding the temple of the Lord. About 50,000 Jews left and under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they began uh, to return to Jerusalem. It was a dream come true. Think about this. For 70 years they had been in captivity. That means that most of them had never seen their homeland. Most of them didn't know what Jerusalem looked like. They didn't know what temple worship was really like. They didn't know any of that. And so the excitement grew, and they were so excited about that. And they returned, and soon after their, re- their arrival, they began to rebuild the temple they cleared away the rubble from the temple court and, and they, they took away all the trash and they rebuilt the altar. That was one of the first things they did and they began offering daily sacrifices again and they laid the foundation and, and then they had a great celebration. However, that's when they began to run into trouble. The Samaritans who had been left behind and, uh, when they went into captivity and while they were left behind, they intermarried with the heathen and they adopted the, the, the forms of worship of the heathen. And the Samaritans came along and they offered help to the Jews to rebuild the temple. Because the Jews hated them, they refused the offer. And so out of spite, the Samaritans began to frustrate the process as much as they possibly could. And they wrote letters to the authorities and eventually they succeeded in getting the work to stop. people of Israel became discouraged. Their zeal disappeared. They no longer had a heart for the work. And this temple that started to be built now left unfinished. In the years that followed, the people became increasingly concerned, not about the things of God, but about their own affairs, their own personal things. And for the next 14 years, the work of the temple was neglected. And the work of the building of the temple should have been their top priority, but it wasn't. In fact, that was the reason they were sent back to Jerusalem was to build the temple, and they hadn't. They had become more and more apathetic towards the work. Now this passage, this scripture, is, is, is given to us by a guy named Haggai. He was an older prophet, and, and, and he came in to tell them of this. And this was written specifically to the Jews. But I think the principles are there for us. But this is not, many times I've heard this passage preached about, about the church, about this physical building, about how, how we're supposed to maintain the building. And I think there are some truths in that, but I don't think that for us as believers today, outside of Jerusalem, that this uh, is applicable in that way. But I do think that this is applicable to us. It's because God had a great work for the people in Haggai's day, and he has also a great work for us today, a work of raising up a holy temple to the Lord. Only the temple that we're asked to raise up is not one made out of brick and mortar. 
but a temple that is comprised of living stones of men and women and boys and girls who have been saved by the grace of God. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he he made a statement to, to, to the religious leaders. He said this, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. And if you remember the story, I skipped verse 20, they, they were kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, it took years for our people to build this temple. And you're saying you're going to destroy it in three days? And verse 21 says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, the Bible talks about the temple of the body. And it goes on, in fact, in, in Peter, and it says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So even though Haggai's words were to the Jews concerning the temple, the principle applies to the church today. And one of the aspects of the word to which you and I are supposed to be involved in seeing sinners being saved and added to the church. Now, of course, we cannot save anyone ourselves, but we can be and are meant to be instruments in doing the work of sharing the gospel. In Romans, Paul is talking about this, and he says the simple gospel message, which is this, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. We understand that's the gospel message. We're going to talk about that later on as we go through this year. The gospel message is whoever calls on the name of the Lord, and if you're here today and you've never called on the name of the Lord, the Bible tells us that you are lost in your sin. And because you're lost in your sin, you are on your way to eternity separated from God in hell. The gospel, the good news is that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But look what it says next. Paul says, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have never heard? See, we live in a country today where your neighbor, has ne- some, in some cases your neighbor has never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, they know the name Christ, but they don't know the good news of Christ. And how are they going to hear unless someone tells them? The end of the verse there, he says, and how they hear without someone preaching. Now, it's easy for every single person sitting in this auditorium to say, I'm not a preacher. That's not what that word means. What that word means is how shall they hear unless someone go and tell them? You see, each one of us has a duty to be involved in this work. It's not reserved for only those that are capable. See, the problem is, is we become apathetic. We have a duty to share the gospel with others, with, with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our classmates, with our neighbors, and with anyone else we can come in contact with. And the question I have for you is, are you doing it? Or is it a work you've neglected? I know that sharing the gospel is not an easy work. I understand that. But the difficulty of the task is no reason to neglect it. We are called to do this work as individuals. We are called to do this work as a congregation. We are meant to reach out as a church into our community around us and tell people about Jesus. We ought to have regular opportunities of outreach. And here's the thing. When we have opportunities of outreach, we should find ways to participate. Now, you may not be able to go door-to-door and canvas or tell people about Jesus. 
You may not be able to do what we did just, just a couple weeks ago. Our teenagers, they gathered together on a Sunday afternoon, and, and we went out and we, we shoveled people's yards and driveways and sidewalks. And, and why? Just to tell them, hey, we love you. I went out with a couple boys, and we, we would knock on doors. And I remember the, the, going to these doors and saying, hey, could we shovel your driveway? Well, why would you do that? I just want to let you know, we're from First Baptist Church, and we love you. Okay, I guess so. And a couple of places we went to, a few minutes later, they'd come out and like, can we get you a hot chocolate or something? No, we just want you to know we care about you. We should be doing that. And the real question is, are you? And maybe you can't do those things, and maybe you can't engage in conversation about spiritual things at one of our outreach events but you can encourage an unbelieving friend to come to the service with you. You can take a, a track and hand it to someone that tells them about Jesus Christ. You can be a testimony, not just with your actions, but with your words, about what God has done to change you. But the question is, do you have a genuine interest and a concern for the work that God has called you, or have you simply become too apathetic? See, there's another very important work to which God has called us besides sharing the gospel, and it's the work of building up ourselves spiritually. See, Scripture tells us that as a collective body, we are the temple of, of the Lord, and so the temple needs to be built. But Scripture also tells us that as individual believers, we are the temple of God. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you uh, have from God? You are not your own. God has called each and every one of us to engage in an ongoing spiritual building of our own personal lives. You see, the temple was a holy place, and we are to build our lives to ensure that we're characterized by holiness. The temple was a place known as a place of prayer, and prayer should be an integral part of our lives. The temple was a place of worship, and worship should be something that is central to everything we do. The temple was a place of sacrifice, and the Bible tells us we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The temple was a place of service, and we are to be men and women who serve all the time in the service of God. And God has called us to build our temple of our spiritual life. The question is, have you applied yourself to that work? Or are you neglecting it? Have you grown in your walk with God? As I was preparing this, God was convicting me. Am I, am I better in my walk with God than I was a year ago? Five years ago. See, what had happened is the people, God's people had neglected the work. My question is, are we neglecting the work? But the second thing we're going to notice is that God's people were content. I'm not using this in a positive way, by the way. What happened is, with the passage of time for the people of Israel who had returned to Jerusalem, they got used to, imagine this, they got used to worshiping God in dilapidated surroundings of a ruined temple. 
They set up an altar and once was the temple court and every day people brought their sacrifices. And I, I imagine that what happened was is that first they looked in and they would offer their sacrifices and they would look around and they would see the building fall apart and they would say, oh, this isn't good. But over time, they got used to it. And they were happy enough just to let things continue as they were. Maybe they initially had no intention of leaving things where they were, but for 14 years, they let it go. And it got to the point, it had to, where it didn't bother them anymore. You ever have, you ever have in your house, you know, let's say there's a, a, a problem in your house. Let's say maybe there's a, a, a hole or a crack somewhere in and, and you walk by it, and the first time you saw it, maybe you were looking at your house, and you were buying your house, and you went, oh man, we got to deal with that crack. Then you move in, and you get busy, and you get going in your life, and, and after a while, and every once in a while you go by, and you go, man, I need to fix that crack. And you've lived there 10 years, and now you're, you're, you're going to sell your house, you're going to move somewhere else, and all of a sudden you look with fresh eyes, because you're trying to make everything ready, and you go, oh, there's that crack, i got to take care of it. Somehow you got used to it, didn't you? That's what the people of Israel did. They were happy enough just to let things continue as they were. They had not really been concerned about the state of things. If they had, they would have done something about it. But the fact of the matter was they were too content with their current situation. And such contentment was evidence of spiritual apathy. And here's the problem, First Baptist Church, is that we can get that same mindset. Again, I'm not talking about this building. Although if you see a crack and want to fix it, go for it. We may not intend for it to happen, but as time passes, we get used to and content with the things the way they are. And we don't do anything to change the situation. Even though we know they're not the way they should be. We don't see sinners being saved. And after a while, we actually get used to it and comfortable with it. We wouldn't say we're content. And never would we say, hey, we're content with where things are. But I wonder, does our lack of evangelistic activity show that we're not actually willing to do anything about it? Does our unwillingness to speak to people about the gospel bear witness against us? Again, when it comes to our personal spiritual lives, maybe over the past few months and years, you've allowed yourself to slip in certain ways. Maybe you've gotten into a habit of, you know, you don't attend worship every Sunday. At first it bothered you, but it doesn't anymore. Or maybe you used to attend Sunday school. You used to come because you wanted to study the Word of God, but... You missed a couple times, or maybe you went to a class you didn't like, and now you're comfortable with not going. What about Sunday night? Or even worse than that, you used to have a time every day when you would read the Word of God, but you missed a day or two. And you felt guilty, so you put it down. You haven't been faithful. And at first, it really, really bothered you. 
but not anymore. And maybe you got used to it now to the extent that it doesn't bother you at all. At least it doesn't bother you enough to do something about it. And the fact of the matter is, you are quite content with the way things are, even though, if truth be told, you know that your spiritual temple is not what it should be. And in fact, you're living, your spiritual ten- temple is rather shabby and dilapidated. We're not concerned enough to change. What I believe is interesting is that oftentimes when we get like this, we actually become very judgmental of other people who are struggling with the same thing we are. Sometimes I've seen that. As a church, because of a family, we're the family the way we are, we'll, we'll talk and, and sometimes we'll be critical and maybe we should be more critical of ourselves. When God's people become content with things as they are in their church, in their family, in their own personal lives, uh, even though they're not the way God wants them to be, spiritual apathy has set in. And my question for you is spiritual apathy set in. You know what? I know I'm guilty of this a lot. Or I get comfortable where I'm at. And we should, as Christians, never be comfortable where we're at. Because we're never where God wants us to be. Are you okay with where your spiritual journey is at this moment? If you're not, do something about it. Do something about it. People were neglecting God's work. They were, they were content where they're at. And then thirdly, and this is a hard one, God's people were making excuses. Look, if you will, at verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. It says, Thus say the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The work of the temple had been stopped, and it seems that at some point, I don't know where it was in the process, some point the suggestion had been made, maybe we should continue the work. But the overwhelming opinion of the people was, no, it's not yet time. This is what the people were saying. It's not that we don't want to do the work. It's not that we don't think it's important. And we have every intention of someday rebuilding the temple, but not yet now. Not today. Now, there may have been different reasons why they said it wasn't time. Now, maybe it was they were busy. If you notice in this passage in verse 1, it said it was the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month and the first day of the month. Now, what's the significance of that? In, in, that, in the calendar of that day, that time uh, kind of connects with the end of August for us. And, and the end of August in their time was a very busy time of the year for the Jews. Why was it a busy time of the year? Because the end of August was grape harvest. And with grape harvest was a lot of work that had to take place. They had to harvest the grapes. They had to process the grapes. They had to do all the things they needed to do with it. And it was, it was busy work. And so maybe the people were saying, look, I'm busy. I am very busy. I'm super busy. But God wouldn't expect us to work on the temple at this time of year. I'm too busy. That excuse has been used by Christians so many times. Oh, I'd love to read God's Word, but you know what? I'm too busy. I mean, I got this activity, and I got this event with my kids, and, and I got this going on at work, and I've got to travel here, and I've got to do this, and, and I don't have time. That was the excuse they were giving. 
Or maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were afraid that if they started the work again, that they might be annoy the Samaritans again. And maybe it would just be best just to leave it alone for a few years and let bad feelings die. And maybe then they could do the work. Or maybe they were saying that it wasn't time because they hadn't gathered enough money and they wanted to do the job properly and so they were waiting until they had enough money so they could do a really good job. Or maybe there was some other reason, but whatever the reason is, they were saying no. I mean, as you read the Word of God, you realize that their, their, their excuses that they were offering up were empty excuses and all they were trying to do was cover their sinful neglect of the work of God. See, the problem is, is a person who is in a state of spiritual apathy will always make excuses to try to cover up their sinful neglect. Always. John Calvin, the theologian, said this, men are ingenious at making excuses to cover up their delinquency. Let me read that again. Men are ingenious at making up excuses to cover their delinquency. See, we're brilliant at making excuses, aren't we? We're brilliant at making excuses for why we're not doing what God wants us to do. And our excuses sometimes are even plausible. They're understandable. They're, they, they seem right. You know, someone might say, I'd love to get involved in the work of the church. I know the church needs Sunday school teachers. I know the church needs nursery workers. I know the church needs people to do outreach. I know I should be doing those things, but I just don't have time. I know we're all busy. I understand that. I'm, I'm not ignorant to those things. Okay? I have a busy life as well, outside of my job. That's just an excuse. And I wonder, what do you think God thinks of our excuses? My pastor used to always say when I was a kid, he used to say this, and maybe you've heard this quote before, he said, you always have time to do what you really want to do. And I think that's true. If you really want to be involved in something, you will. If you really want to read the Word of God, you will. Or maybe you've said, I'd love to give I'd love to give a tenth of my income to the Lord's work, but I just can't afford it at the moment. Maybe when I get back on my feet financially, or, or maybe then I will give more. Yet, you can afford the new television you bought. Or maybe you say, I know I should be more interested and supportive of missionary work. I know I should write letters or pray for our missionaries, but dot, 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 fill in the excuse. Or maybe you say, I know I should witness to my unsaved friends and coworkers and loved ones, but dot, dot, dot. You see, we're brilliant at making excuses for not doing what God wants us to do. And here's my fear as your pastor, is my fear as, is that First Baptist Church has been here so long and has grown so comfortable that we've become apathetic to the things of God. And when we become apathetic, what happens? Let's look br briefly, and these next two points aren't as long, I promise you. But let's look briefly at the consequences of spiritual apathy. What happens as a result? Two things I want you to notice. First of all, fellowship with God is weakened. Look again in Haggai, look at verse 2. I read this a moment ago, and I'm guessing that you may have missed this. In verse 2 it says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, These people have the time 
Notice the way that God refers to Haggai's self-centered, ungrateful, worldly-minded, spiritually apathetic contemporaries. He calls them these people. Say, what's the big deal? He didn't say, my people. There's more of a hint, there's more than just a little hint of contempt in that cold form of address. It's as if God's saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you people. I don't want to associate with you in any way. He seems to have had enough of their time-wasting, their self-centeredness, their worldly-mindedness, and he wants to distance himself completely from them. You know, this isn't the only place that he uses this kind of address. Look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah here, God is coming to the prophet Jeremiah, and the people of Israel are living in complete rebellion at this time, and God comes to the prophet, and look what he says. As for you, do not pray for this people. comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I'm tired of them. They're not my people. Don't pray for them. We see another example in Exodus when, when the people of Israel, remember Moses goes up to the mount to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes back down from the mountain and what are the people doing? They have taken and they have made all of their gold into a, in a, into a golden calf. And they're worshiping this calf and they're, and they're praising this calf and they're dancing around and, and God comes and he says to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, they're a stiff-necked people. In each case, in each instance where God does this, His anger is against them because of their sin, and it results in a breakdown in a relationship with God. And that's exactly what's happening in Haggai's day. And here's the thing, is in Haggai's day, they were still worshiping God. As far as we know, it wasn't like they were in some, what we would consider, deep sin. They were consistently doing the things God wanted them to do in a, in a surface way. Their relationship with God was broken because the sp- people's spiritual apathy, their indifference to the ruined state of the temple, their unwillingness to apply on themselves to the important work of really building the house, their selfish-centered approach had kindled God's anger and it had hurt their relationship with God. He no longer was addressing them with gentle, loving affectionate tones. Instead, he uses a contemptuous term. These people. What about you? Do you feel God's working in your life? Would you say right now your relationship with God is strong? Do you ever wonder why you're not hearing from God? Maybe it's because you've allowed spiritual apathy to creep in. Secondly, the second consequence is the blessing of God is withheld. Look, if you will, back in the passage. I'm going to read a few verses. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, You have sown much and harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. And here's what God is saying to them. He's saying, you know what? You continue to do and do and do and you continue to work and yet you're not seeing prosperity. You're not seeing success. You're not seeing uh, blessing. Look on, if you will. Look at verse 9. 
You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. He says, you go out and you sow, and you come back and you think, look what I've done. And God says, and I just, and I blow it away. And then look what he says, why? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, because of that, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land. See, God was withholding his blessing from them because of their sin. God says to the people, do you want to know the reason why you're having these problems that you're having? Do you want to know why I'm not blessing you? Well, I'll tell you, it's because you're self-centered, you're worldly, you're ungrateful. So therefore, because of that, I'm not blessing you. You've put yourself first and me second. It's because you have allowed my house to lie in ruins for 14 years. It's because you have made empty excuses for neglecting the work of the Lord that I've called you to do. It's because you keep saying, we'll get around to God's work someday. But you have spent all your time thinking about yourself. And because of this, I have withheld my blessing from you. There's an interesting play on words in the original language that doesn't, that doesn't appear here in our English translations. If you look at down in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 9, and we see there he says um, that, well, middle of verse 9, he says, because my house that lies in ruins. And, and the, a better wording there would be because my house is desolate. Because my house is desolate. And then for, look, verse, look at verse 11. He says, and I have called for a drought. In other words, the, the, the wording there could be more better stated this way. He says, because my house is desolate, now I'm going to make your land desolate. God is saying, I'm going to give you basically, we would say, a taste of your own medicine. I've shut up the heavens so that rain and dew hasn't fallen. I've caused the land not to produce a crop. The sun has baked that soft, rich uh, soil and has made it as hard as iron. And instead of blessing you, I'm inflicting you. Instead of being the objects of my bountiful provisions, you are the object of my chastening displeasure. Has God withheld his blessing from you? So maybe you're here this morning and you're starting to say, you know, Pastor Pete, I do see apathy creep that has crept into my life. And what do we do about it? And just briefly, I'm going to introduce this. And you say, what do you mean introduce? This is going to go into next week as well. I want to introduce what is the cure for spiritual apathy. Look, if you will, at this passage again. Notice what he says in verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up into the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. We see from that two things quickly. First of all, I want you to notice we need to stop and evaluate our lives. He says to them, consider your ways. See, they had, they had gotten so comfortable that they didn't even realize they were comfortable. And he says to them, consider. We as believers, we need to stop and consider. I believe God can do 
great things through First Baptist Church. But it's got to start with us. We've got to say, what am I doing wrong? Or what am I not doing that God wants me to do? The second thing, not only consider, but we need to do the work. Notice again, verse 7, he says, go up in the hills. That's interesting. He didn't say, hey, we're going to have a time here where we're going to We're going to talk about all the things we're doing wrong. He says, no, take a moment to consider and then start working. Get up and do the work. You say, I'm I'm not ready. Yes, you are. And that's what he's saying is don't stop and say, okay, let's have some training time on how we should do the work. Let's go. And he said, no, get up and go. Do the work. And finally, look at, skip down to verse 13. And he says an amazing thought here. As the people began going, they began doing. And I love that it says that if you look at in verse 12, it says they obeyed the voice of the Lord and they began to work. And, and in the process of working, I'm, I'm sure they feel overwhelmed. In verse 13, Haggai comes to them, the messenger of the Lord, and he spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And he says this from God, I am with you. The third aspect is we need to realize that you, we need God. We desperately need God. So next week, we're going to look more deeply into that. And the title of my message next week is The Greatest Need for First Baptist Church. What do we need? What I want to ask you, I said at the very beginning to, to, to be honest, be humble and listen. If God's working in your life, be honest with yourself. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I'm good, and you've fallen into what we're talking about here. You've fallen into spiritual apathy. And so I challenge you to be honest with yourself. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this text. Lord, I thank you for the prophet that you sent to your people to share a message that is still prevalent for us today, is still important for us today, that we, as God's people, we as your people, need to be serious about the work. Lord, I know it's so easy. It's so easy to get comfortable in our surroundings, to get comfortable with the mundane day-to-day work and forget about the incredible task that you have given us of building the body and of building our own spiritual temple. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to have that desire. We thank you, God, for all that you've done. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.